Hey, it's Jim Paff. Welcome again to the Against Nice podcast, where we believe that nice people tend to be the most evil people of all because they want you to fit in the mold that they believe is best. We believe in a culture and government that honors individual decision-making, where you choose the direction of your life. This is the best way to promote justice and fairness in society and to promote an attitude of kindness, which looks to the benefit of others, not to yourself. You can join us at politicsisntnice.com. Click on the Join Us button there at the top right and join our email list. Let's get going with the podcast. Really excited to have uh, Robert P. George. He's a professor at Princeton University to join me on the podcast today. I saw a Twitter storm that he had where he was uh, talking about people who were concerned about their careers and they they were mostly academics. He had, he he gets uh, people following him anonymously and from time to time he'll uh, work to figure out who these people are, try to call them out of his uh, Twitter following. But when he did it this time, he got a lot of feedback from people who had these anonymous accounts entirely concerned about uh, their ability to keep their jobs even and to lose their academic careers, whether they were had tenure or hoping to get tenure. And he had other people too. But he was talking about how there is an increasing concern amongst people who could lose their jobs if they did not toe the line. They've got the woke crowd coming after them, and they were really concerned, and they shared this with him. So uh, Robert George shared uh, some thoughts about what that meant to him, and we'll talk about that in the podcast. He'll kind of lay out what had happened there. We get into other discussions too, like religious freedom and whether we've got justice in our country right now, and uh, what whether that we can maintain our liberties based upon that, how we should respond to it, and what are the origins of these problems that are happening in our culture. Robert George is an amazing thinker. He founded uh, an organization uh, called the Manhattan Declaration that talked about how people should respond in culture when all these various uh, problems on the social conservative side of things, how Christians should react, people of faith, people that declare Christ. And he did this across borders in the evangelical community, in the Catholic community, the Orthodox community. It was a key declaration that rolled out in 2009 that I think is still relevant for Christians today. So he uh, really has been a great leader on how people of faith, people of good conscience and goodwill, should react in society. So it's kind of a perfect fit for the Against Nice podcast. So without further ado, I want to get to our discussion with uh, Robert George of Princeton University. Welcome to the Against Nice podcast. I'm really honored to have uh, Robert P. George. He's the McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence and Director of the James Madison Program uh, in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University. He's also a frequently visiting professor at Harvard Law School. Uh, he's um, served as chairman of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. He's also served on the President's Council on Bioethics 
as a presidential appointee in the United States Commission on Civil Rights and as a U.S. member of UNESCO's World Commission on the Ethics of Science and Technology. Uh, he also serves on the boards of the John M. Templeton Foundation, Religion Trust, the Lindy and Harry Bradley Foundation, the Ethics and Public Policy Center, the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, the National Center on Sexual Exploitation and Center for Individual Rights, among others. He's a graduate of Swarthmore College. Uh, Professor George holds an MTS and JD degrees from Harvard University and the degrees of Doctor of Philosophy and others from Oxford University, and he holds 19 honorary degrees. Now, I'm going through all of this because I typically do a shorter bio, but I think all of this is really important to uh, point out because uh, just recently, uh, Dr. George uh, put out uh, a list of tweets kind of addressing uh, problems and uh, concerns and even fears that academics and others are having when he was uh, just asking people who are anonymous, you know, why they're on his, uh, why, why they're following him on Twitter. And it was a surprising, maybe not so surprising, but certainly interesting revelations that people were giving him through direct messages. I saw this and contacted uh, Dr. George just to say, wow, let's talk about this because this is a real problem. We'll, we'll detail what that Twitter storm was, but I want to thank you for uh, your willingness to join the podcast and really appreciate uh, what you do and your willingness to be with us today and to talk about this. It's my pleasure, uh, Jim. Thanks for having me on. Thanks. Um, this, we're, we're in a, in, in a situation today that is really scary. I mean, I think in many ways. Uh, scary in the sense of the emotional disruption that all of what's going on right now is causing people. I think there are a lot of people of courage out there who are concerned, but I think we're, uh, my take is that we're in a potential cultural, uh, political, and uh, fundamental uh, shift in where we're going to, where we might end up in this country. I mean, in one sense, this is new to us. It's, in, it, it's consistent with what you've seen historically in other countries. We've never quite seen, I mean, we've had some really difficult times even culturing in this country, but we've never quite seen the type of attack on our culture that we see today. That's my take. Is that, do you agree with that? Yeah. There's an attack on the fundamental principles and institutions of the, of the Republic. Um, people have, in many cases, uh, far from all, thank God, but in many cases, <laughs> lost faith in the principles of the American founding and the institutions established under the Constitution to effectuate those principles. The principles articulated, for example, in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that's a real statement of the American creed right there. It's a statement of principle. Uh, the Constitution is meant to effectuate those principles. but. People are starting, and many people have already lost their faith in the principles, lost their faith in the institutions, no longer believe the country is fundamentally good. Now, we all recognize the sins historically that have been committed in the name of the country. Uh, sins against the Native American Indian population, sins uh, uh, associated with slavery, the enslaving of people from Africa, uh, the, the crimes committed in the aftermath of abolition of slavery under Jim Crow and segregation. But we have heretofore in this country understood 
that those sins and crimes were not the fault of the principles. On the contrary, they happened because we were unfaithful to the principles. We deviated from the principles. From the very beginning, we deviated from the principles. And so we understood that our history was a history to struggle for greater and greater fidelity to those principles, to overcome the sins and evils in the past. Today, people have lost faith in that and indeed have, in many cases, lost faith in the principles themselves. Now, there's my big worry, uh, because I think those principles are true and good and right yeah. and just and necessary to the well-being of people. I want to see those principles spread. <laughs> I yeah. don't want yeah. us to give up on those, on those principles. But if we do, then they're going to be replaced with something. Yeah. And I can't see, in my field of vision, I can't see anything that would replace them that would not in the end mean oppression and tyranny and shame and disgrace so i want to fight for those principles and for our institutions i want to defend them as an american and in my case and yours as a christian because we Christians, although we are resident aliens in one sense, uh, we're, we're subjects of another kingdom, at the same time, we've understood from the very beginning of Christianity, uh, under Rome, under the Roman Empire, we, we have understood that we are called to be the very best of good citizens of the political regimes in which we live. That's part of, not the whole of, part of our Christian vocation. So as Christians, as citizens, I believe we need to stand up courageously because courage is required, boldly because boldness is required, and defend those principles and institutions. You know, it's really interesting at this time with this Black Lives Matter push that's taking place, a with a fundamental precept behind their movement. And not, by the way, not the rank and file folks. I'm really talking about the leaders. I think there are a lot of people who uh, want to get involved with the whole Black Lives Matter concept who have sincere motives, a desire to address some wrongs that they feel are in society, whether rightly or wrongly, and in many cases, rightly. But you don't hear an appeal to, an, as we talk about the imperfections of this country, we don't appeal to an imperfect man, Martin Luther King, who in his whole effort, which was so fundamentally helpful to this society that uh, he appealed to the Declaration of Independence. He appealed to the Constitution. And of course, he appealed to the fundamental precepts of the rule of law and of justice, not, not social justice, but justice itself. And, and if we really want to see, and if they really want to see these changes, it's a, a new appeal, I think, for those principles, just like Martin Luther King did. I mean, he was fundamentally brilliant in the way that he, he uh, pursued those, uh, those concepts as he was trying to find a foundation for a change in civil liberties that, that black folks were uh, fundamentally suffering from at that time. Yeah, the message that uh, you just heard me preaching a moment ago, and uh, which was there in that uh, tweet storm that I did on Twitter, yeah. And that has been in all of my writings is simply the message of Martin Luther King, which was in turn simply the message of Abraham Lincoln, which was in turn simply uh, the message of the greatest of our of our founding fathers. Uh, King, as you say, like Lincoln before him, 
constantly repaired to the Declaration of Independence. He didn't reject it. Right. On the contrary, he regarded it as, to use his phrase, a promissory note. And he rightly said, it's time to pay on the note. You know, yeah. that note has been out there since 1776, and we haven't been paying on the note. Now it's time to pay on the note. You know, we abolished slavery. That's good. But that was replaced by Jim Crow, you know, for nearly 100 years. Segregation, racism. Now we've abolished de jure segregation and the Jim Crow system, and that's good. But there's still some after effects and some injustices that need to be corrected. He was absolutely yeah. right about that, and that remains the case. It is true. And I try to remind my conservative friends that it is true, especially those who are not black. It is true that black folk are subjected to indignities that other folk are not on a regular basis. If you're a black man like Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina, Republican conservative, he can tell you and has told us that as a black man, he is often treated in ways that his white colleagues are not. For example, I'll give you a very good example. Early in his career in the Senate, as he was going into the Senate, walking alongside a couple of other senators who were, who were white, the police stopped them and questioned him, not the others, and said, what are you doing here? <laughs> and, and he pointed to the badge that the senators and members of the House of Representatives wear on their lapels to indicate that they're members. He pointed to the badge in, in, in order to say, I'm a member of the Senate. And the police officer, who I'm sure was not a bad person, and I'm sure was not a terrible racist or anything like that, said to Tim Scott, I recognize the badge, but I don't recognize you. Yeah. Now, that doesn't yeah. happen to Lindsey Graham, and that doesn't happen to Chuck Schumer. Black women will tell you about experiences they have of being followed around in department stores by clerks or by security guards when white women are or not. This is not right. And, and these indignities have, have got to stop. Uh, and, and, and while the police are, we should be supporting our police because our police are for the most part wonderful people who are protecting us at risk to themselves every single day. Mm -hmm. There have been, there's no question, police abuses, some race-based. And we have to correct that. So we, we need to acknowledge that there's a real legacy here that we need to continue the reform process on, no question about it. At the same time, let's not allow that to become a pretext for an ideology, a kind of Marxist or quasi-Marxist ideology that undermines, cuts away at, tries to uh, destroy the basic principles of the American founding, the principles of liberal democracy, as we sometimes call it. Republican yeah. government is the founding fathers called it, the principles of the Declaration and of the, of the Constitution. This is not hard. This is not difficult. We can draw these distinctions. It's not rocket science, but we've got to do it. We've got to do it. We can't let sentimentality get in the way of doing it, and we can't let stubbornness get in the way of doing it. Conservative folk need to recognize that there are indignities and injustices that continue and that have to be rectified. Folk on the liberal side or progressive side have to recognize that the American founding principles, the basic principles of our republic, 
are right and good and shouldn't be undermined. Yeah, and by the way, I got to know Tim Scott fairly well when I was working in Washington, D.C. I lived in Charleston for a couple of years. We would very often sit on the flights together when we happened to be on the same one heading back there. First of all, not a more gentle Christian man that you've yeah. ever met in your life. Uh, fine he man. Grew up, yeah, fine man. He grew up in North Charleston, which really hit in his youth, had a lot of problems that he went through. Yeah. He's lived this on a regular basis and maintains a good heart about it. And, 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 and the, he's, he's even having similar indignities to the one you described on the Senate floor just recently. Um, oh, I know. That's right. Where horrible. he was called token by one of the yeah. liberal Democratic senators. Absolutely. This is disgraceful. This should not be happening. This yeah. should not continue. And we got to take that seriously. Yeah, we do. I mean, that there's still something in human nature. I mean, I, as I often say, and, and I heard that some famous historian said it, but I haven't confirmed it. 6,000 years of recorded human history proves the moral depravity of man. The one thing, the one <laughs> I thing. I think that, it was G.K. Chesterton, Jim, who said that, It may have been. No, well, yeah. no, what he said is, is slightly different. It makes the same point, but I yeah, love yeah. the quote so much that I'm going to give it to your uh, viewers and listeners. Uh, Chesterton said, original sin is the one Christian doctrine for which there is knocked down empirical evidence. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And and it's it's so, we're never going to get rid of that fundamental problem in yeah. humanity. I think it's really interesting how, uh, how these uh, proponents of really some of these evil things that are taking place on the streets, uh, in academia, as you point out, how they they don't understand as they're beating down Thomas Jefferson, they have no clue that Jefferson's entire purpose of everything he wrote in that declaration was to get us on the path of extracting ourselves as best possible from some of the evils, not of human history, but that had been still writhing in Western culture at the time of the writing of the Declaration. Yeah, um, a lot of what you see going on, the violence, the looting, uh, the rioting, uh, this, this is just being done under the pretext of struggling for racial justice. It's not part of any struggle for racial justice. Um, and, and we shouldn't put up with that pretextual nonsense. Let's get serious about the serious problems with race and racial injustice. But let's not allow that to be used as a pretext for behavior that is motivated by other and much more malign uh, things. We need to be, we need to be again strict about that. I mean, it's again, not rocket science. It's not hard to figure out what what's what here. We know what's going on. If you're a follower of Martin Luther King, looking for payment on the promissory note from the Declaration of Independence, you're not breaking breaking into a local jewelry store. That's not what you're doing. <laughs> Martin Luther King was willing to go to jail in defiance of the segregation laws, but he wasn't breaking into stores and stealing other people's property or anything like that. Let's be, let's be clear and let's be serious about that. Jefferson's an interesting case. Jefferson did understand that slavery was wrong. In fact, he, he put it in a way that is almost unparalleled for its insight. Here's what he said about slavery. A slave owner. But here's what he said about slavery. I tremble for my country when I consider that God is just and that his justice will not sleep forever. Yeah. I tremble for my country when I consider that God is just. 
because he knew there would be a punishment on the country for slavery. He almost anticipates what Lincoln would say then in the second inaugural address, where he said, we all knew that slavery was the cause of the war, which had resulted uh, by the time of the second inaugural already in more than 600,000 deaths and it wasn't over yet. He said, we all knew that slavery was part of the war and then Lincoln, uh, the cause of the war. And, and then Lincoln says, uh, it's the punishment of God on both the North and South for the sin of, of slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the great figures of our past, including some who owned slaves like Jefferson and like Washington, knew that it was wrong, but they couldn't figure out how to extricate themselves for it or their personal weaknesses, you know, Je- Je- Jefferson's desire for a comfortable uh, life. He loved nice things. He spent a lot of money on fancy furniture and wine and luxuries of every of every sort. It was all on the backs of the slaves, and yeah. he couldn't extricate himself from that. So it's a combination of 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 failing to see how to get out of the slavery problem, and the personal flaws that led them to implicate themselves in Jefferson's case and in Washington's case. The Washington at least freed his slaves in his will and made yeah. financial provision for them. But these personal flaws that kept them from doing the right thing. Now, you know what that proves, Jim? One thing. They were human beings right. like us. Right. You know, if, if we, we better be careful about standing in judgment over a man as great as George Washington. Yeah. Because we have sins and faults and flaws, too, probably worse than his. Mm-hmm. And we don't want to think about that. And it, it, it could be generations before a lot of people come to understand, or before people generally come to understand, that some people that some things that people are totally behind and supportive of today are actually grave evils. I mean, the day is going to come when even those on the progressive side are going to understand that the mass slaughter of unborn babies are, is a grave evil. And then people are going to ask, but how did good people who were so progressive in trying to uh, make an inclusive society stand for the mass slaughter, the dismemberment abortions, the saline abortions, cutting off tiny arms and legs, burning skin off unborn babies. How inhumane, how grotesque, how could they have done it? What we say about slavery, someday that's gonna be said about abortion. But there are good people today who support abortion. They're blind to its evil in the same way people could be blind to its evil in the case of slavery. And in the, in the same way that some people realize there's something wrong with abortion but can't see how we can do something about it. There were people back then who saw there was something gravely wrong with slavery but didn't think we could do anything about it. It was a necessary evil, they, they thought. Now, that, that doesn't mean that slavery and abortion are the same thing. They're not. There are many differences. They can't be directly compared. But there are certain respects in which they're alike. And the most fundamental is this. Both deny the profound, inherent, and equal dignity of each and every member of the human family. That's what they've got in common, and people have trouble seeing that. Jim, for the whole of history, people have had trouble grasping that very first most fundamental principle I just articulated, the profound, inherent, and equal dignity of each and every member of the human family. Uh, Culture after culture, try to find a culture that affirms it in a, in a consistent and rigorous way. You can't. Yeah, we yeah. have throughout human history, across cultures over time, been unable to really honor that principle, despite the fact 
that it is at its core the principle that's articulated right in Genesis 1, right at the very beginning, the very first book in the Bible, the very first chapter, that man is made in the very image and likeness of the divine creator and ruler of the universe, in the very image of God, the Imago Dei. That's the foundation of human equality, of human yes. dignity, of the profound inherent and equal dignity of each and every member of the human family. But even Christian civilizations have not been able to live up to that. Now that doesn't excuse anybody, and it certainly doesn't excuse us. Right. So our task, it seems to me, Jim, is to dedicate ourselves anew to working for the cause of equal dignity. For you know, um, Jefferson, it was such a visceral problem, slavery to him, that in his notes on Virginia prior, years before writing the Declaration of Independence, he described the problem of slavery as holding on to the dog's ears, hoping it won't bite you, but being yeah. afraid to let go. That, it, I mean, it, it is fundamentally outrageous for uh this culture to beat down jefferson in the manner they are i mean it, 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 he he deserves some uh discredit of course but uh but to understand that a man of his nature understood not just at the intellectual but at the visceral level of what it was doing to the country but to fix this wrong he appealed to the rule of law he appealed to the ideas of eternal justice that that presuppose any freedoms that we might have in 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 a nation but now come to today speaking of the abortion issue uh my friend troy newman who runs operation rescue he and david dadeline i thought i always forget how to pronounce his name you know they 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 um exposed the real evil the, the the even worse evil i should say of abortion which is the selling of baby body parts and then they go into a california court that is determined to fundamentally uphold this visceral evil of abortion and to uh, cause them not only ju just judicial but financial harm it it's amazing yeah, the, how we've the, turned the it same, on its head the the same thing happened during the struggle for civil rights uh, courts in the South tried to protect segregation and Jim Crow. They tried to punish uh, civil rights workers, civil rights organizations. Uh, history, <laughs> there's almost nothing new. History does really repeat itself. It the, really does. The subject or the cause may change, but human nature being what it is, people behave in, uh, in much the same way. But we have to continue the struggle. Um, uh, yeah. The struggle for the rights of the unborn child are... For us, uh, the, the, the parallel to the struggle for uh, racial justice and to overcome Jim Crow and segregation for the previous generation, even as we're working on the continuing lingering after effects of Jim Crow and, and segregation, rooted, of course, in the, uh, the gravest evil of all um, in that domain, which was slavery. Well, so and, I think yeah. we need to keep I, I think we need to keep at it and we just can't be deterred and, and and god bless people like david delyden for uh standing fast and being brave and being willing to suffer the consequences yeah and um it, it what it reveals is a fundamental misunderstanding of uh of how we abandon the principles of justice whatever the issue is in history to yeah. get at these uh selfish uh corrupt ideas that mankind often brings forth now 
we that this kind of leads me to this. I mean, we we do have a pro, I, I am looking at what we're doing in our judicial system right now. I look at this recent case that the Supreme Court decided, um, the Dayton, the, the, the Calvary Chapel Dayton Valley case in uh, Nevada. And I look at, and Judge Gorsuch was brilliant in his one, uh, one paragraph, a denunciation of the verdict, because it so obviously contradicts and, and attempts to contravene the fundamental principles of the First Amendment, the free exercise of religion. And, and I, I, think, I think that this shows that we have lost the ability to go back to fundamental principles in a way that can bring consistency. I look at the Old Testament, and I fear for our country because the, the clear judgments of God against ancient Israel for abandoning the principles of justice were harsh. They led to a breakdown of their government and society often with uh, outsiders coming in and for a period of time taking away their freedoms. Um, I see this problem continuing to grow and become worse, which I think becomes a problem of the academy, if you ask me, the university system at its foundation in terms of the uh, uh, the training and teaching and focus and drive towards uh, ideas of liberty and freedom, but, but even more fundamentally, the, the use of logic and reason to understand what these principles are, even where there are disagreements. Uh, the, the university system in our country for a long period of time, with all of its flaws as well too, was really good at, at giving us a, a foundation for, uh, for understanding where, what we were about, where we needed to go, how we needed to apply it in new generations uh, past the Constitution. It seems we have lost that. That's something I think you're addressing in your, uh, or at least exposing somewhat in, in your tweet storm. But am I right about this? I mean, have we really lost the ability to maintain any of those sorts of foundations because of the breakdown in our academic institutions? Well, let's begin, uh, Jim, by uh, bringing your uh, viewers and listeners up to speed on the case that you mentioned uh, out yeah. of Nevada, which made it to the Supreme Court, but was uh, uh, decided in a way that um, I agree with you is extremely unfortunate. Um, this was a case in which uh, regulations that um, placed restrictions on uh, worship that were not placed on other forms of um, organization or getting together, the, where the regulations were challenged in court by the churches who simply asked for equal treatment, nothing special. They just said the, the restrictions on our gathering should be no different from the restrictions on secular gatherings, like gatherings at casinos, for example. Mm -hmm. And uh, the state, um, refused to recognize that basic principle of fair and equal treatment for institutions of faith. The case went up through the courts all the way to the Supreme Court, where in a 5-4 decision, the court ruled in favor of the state and said that the uh, um, regulations were legitimate despite the fact that they were unequal. 
and, and Neil Gorsuch did file a stinging dissent. It was only one paragraph long, but it, it just made the point that this was actually a simple case, yeah. that uh, you cannot treat religion worse than secular activities because it's religion. <laughs> if you treat religion a certain way, it's got to be consistent with the way you treat secular activities. If you treat secular activities a certain way, you can't treat religion worse. It's really straightforward. And yet, the four members on the, of the court on the left all voted to uphold the regulations and were joined, I'm sorry to say, by Chief Justice Roberts. I mean, it was inexplicable to me that Chief Justice Roberts could join that. It's inexplicable to me that the liberals on the court didn't see that there's something fundamentally wrong yeah. uh, with uh, this disparity of treatment. Yeah. But, but there it is. It's, it's important, by the way, to recognize states can legitimately, for public health and safety reasons, regulate uh, religious assemblies. They can, they can even shut down churches if they're shutting down all other gatherings. Right. If they've got a good public health reason it's got to be a compelling reason. You've got to really be, you know, trying to stop a deadly pandemic or something like that. That is, in fact, constitutionally permissible. Some, some, some Christians don't understand that, but that is consistent with our uh, Constitution. But you can't do it as a pretext, and you can't treat religion differently or worse than you treat secular gatherings. So if people can get together in casinos, they've got to be able to get together and be able to get together in the same terms in, in churches. And it was the disparity of treatment that the churches were complaining about. They weren't saying we, we can be free from all regulations. The state regulates churches all the time perfectly legitimately. There are fire standards, general public safety standards, building inspections, Churches are just as subject to that as casinos or, or, or yeah. restaurants or any other, any other business, and in some cases, even private residences. But you can't treat religion worse. You can't disfavor religion. You can't discriminate against religion. And that's what was going on in the Nevada case, and that, unfortunately, is what was upheld by the Supreme Court of the United States. That decision's got to get reversed. I mean, yeah. we need to take that one out. That is a disgraceful decision. So, Ben, before we get into the whole issue of academic freedom, I, first of all, Gorsuch appealed to the First and Fourteenth Amendment, I think, by implication in his dispute, the, the fair treatment and and uh, uh, right to, uh, you know, express your religious in the public square. But um, when, let's quickly to the matter of civil disobedience, I mean, does this not call for civil disobedience? John MacArthur over in Los Angeles in his church, large church over there, is holding services in contravention of the not only the California order, but by implication to the Supreme Court case. Is this a time for civil disobedience as this sort of thing is playing out during this COVID-19 situation? Well, the model that we've come to use here is Martin Luther King, who did practice uh, civil disobedience, and sometimes the time comes. I mean, certainly civil disobedience is required when the state government, uh, whether it's state or federal, I mean, <clears throat> state in the sense of the government, yeah. uh, is requiring you to do something morally wrong, something unjust or otherwise morally wrong. You can never comply with that order. So that's that's a case where automatically you have to uh, right. engage in civil disobedience. But that's not what's going on here. Here we have a restriction on our freedom that is unjust. And here our obligation is to first work through 
the ordinary uh, established uh, processes of uh, Republican democracy to rectify the problem. Our first step in these sorts of situations, in my view, should not be to civil disobedience. We need to try. We need to give the system a chance. But at the end of the day, if it cannot be reformed in that way, then I think we have to soberly assess, and I'm not going to offer a judgment right now because I think it would take a sober assessment. We have to sit back and think and talk about whether the offense here, the discrimination, the injustice, is grave enough to warrant civil disobedience. Now, Martin Luther King famously said that where you break the law because you feel you must as a matter of conscience, you have to do so lovingly, that is not in a spirit of anger or hatred, mm-hmm. openly, that is not secretly, mm-hmm. and with a willingness to bear the consequences. King was willing to go to jail. He did go to jail in Albany, Georgia. He went to jail in, in Birmingham. In Albany, by the way, he was he was bailed out by uh, Billy Graham. People mm. don't know that, but, yeah. but he was. I yeah. love that. I love uh, that. Yeah. Um, uh, so I think at that point, if it comes to that, and people in conscience, whether it's Pastor MacArthur or whoever it is, decides, you know, we've, we've tried to reform the system. We've tried to do what's right here. We've try, tried to go through the normal processes of our deliberative democracy. Uh, the injustice continues. The only <clears throat> way now, our only last resort, our only way of fighting it is by practicing civil disobedience. You've got to be prepared to bear the consequences. You've got to be prepared to go to jail. Uh, it's, um, and this, these types of responses are becoming more and more commonly placed before us, or at least a consideration of them as we work through the COVID-19 response in governments. And, um, and again, as it relates to this religious liberty thing, I'm curious, but again, I want to, I want to get to university uh, to your tweets and university things in just a moment, but one last thing, are we seeing in your uh, legal judgment, uh, a, a real, either unconstitutional, whether it's the federal or state constitutions, are we seeing a real overreach in these governors who are placing these restrictions on people? Uh, I think a lot of people are trying to are struggling with, why do I have to wear a mask? Is it really scientifically there? I think this appeal to science that is usually appealing to people, it happens in climate change and other places as well, that appeals to people flawed as they are, uh, sometimes being quite wrong, as I think much of the scientific uh, prescriptions going into this were quite wrong. Are these governors overreaching? I mean, we've never we've never had quite this kind of a political and governmental response to these sorts of pandemics ever in this country. So, sober assessment is needed here. Now, there are three factors people have to carefully take into account. One is science, the real science, not the fake science. Yeah. And and in in the case of COVID-19, the science is still somewhat unclear. We do not understand nearly as much about this virus as we need to understand. But we need to do our best to understand the science. That's number one. Number two is democracy. Decisions, even when they are based on disputes about the science, need to be made democratically not by edicts, not by governors issuing edicts, not by presidents issuing executive orders, but democratically. 
the, the, the legislatures have to step up to the plate here and do their jobs, whether it's the state legislatures or the Congress. You cannot let governors and presidents act like kings. doesn't matter whether you like the governor or like the president or dislike him. Right. What matters is he's not a legislator. It's not up to him to make the law. So there's science, there's democracy, and three, there's individual freedom. What's protected, for example, in our Bill of Rights, especially in our First Amendment, like the right of assembly, like the free exercise of religion, like the free ex- uh, the freedom of speech, all of which are in play, of course, in, in, in this, uh, in this uh, controversy. Now, states may legitimately enact public health and safety laws. They can restrict individual freedom, but they need good reasons for them. Those reasons are often reviewable by courts, but one of the things courts need to be looking at especially when there are disputes about the scientific basis for a public health or public safety regulation, is whether these are democratically validated, democratically pedigreed decisions. If it's just governors functioning as legislatures or legislators, then they are usurping the authority of the elected representatives of the people and acting like little dictators. And courts then should rightly step in and ensure that these decisions are made by legislatures. That doesn't mean the courts should make the decisions right one way or another that too would be a usurpation just generally jim going beyond the public health issue i mean just look at cases like roe versus wade and obergefell Mm -hmm. look at some of the worst decisions that we've had in our lifetimes they are courts usurping the authority of legislatures the the debate over same-sex marriage should not have been resolved by the courts as it was in Obergefell. It was a legislative matter. The debate over abortion should not have been resolved by the court. It was a legislative matter. And and, and now in the COVID-19 case, we don't want courts going in and doing that again. On the other hand, these decisions are not fundamentally to be made by governors, or that matter, presidents. We need legislators legislatures to do their job. I I was uh, asked by uh, Politico, um, the, the website Politico, Uh, to be one of the respondents to a question they put to some scholars and activists and other people. And that was, uh, if you could, if you could, if you could change one thing, if you could get people to do one thing (laughs) to make our government better, what would you do? And my answer to that, and I'll give it as my, as something I'd share with your viewers and listeners, is I'd make every citizen and certainly every legislator politician, judge, uh, president, governor, I'd make everyone in the country look very carefully at the first word of the first sentence of the first paragraph of the very first article of the Constitution of the United States. It's the most overlooked word in the entire Constitution. It's the word all, A-L-L, all. That article, that first article of the Constitution is the article in which the people of the United States vest in the Congress all legislative power. Now, if the Congress has all legislative power, how much does that mean executives have? Zero. Zero. How much does that mean courts have? Zero. None. And yet, we find ourselves governed by courts and executives. Yeah. Right? Not by the people's representatives. And, And in part significant part, Jim. That's because Congress has willingly abdicated its legislative responsibility. You see the same thing, by the way, in the state legislatures. 
Yes, true. A lot of abdication of responsibility because they don't want to take responsibility. The, the men and women who serve like being reelected. They don't like taking controversial stands. So uh, they uh, simply abdicate their responsibility. It's the easy way out. Let the governor do it. Let the courts do it. They don't legislate and they don't stand up to the courts. Yep. I mean, Congress should have stood up to the courts on Roe versus Wade ages ago, as, yep. as should have presidents. Correct. Um, and, and we have the same sort of thing here. So I don't object to public health uh, regulations and provisions being put in place, even as applied to individuals, whether it's wearing masks or what have you. Where the science is controversial, we have to do our best to get at the truth of the matter. And, and, and people are going to make mistakes. Even scientists make mistakes. You get two scientists together, often you have three opinions. But the key thing is that when we make decisions in the face of the disputed science or whatever, they need to be made democratically, not well, by courts, not by courts. I agree. And listen, I'm, I'm looking and, and tracking this uh, nationwide and various states have very, give various authorities to governors to, to make these decisions here in Colorado, where I live, uh, the legislature unwisely a couple of years ago passed a law that does give the governor a decent amount of levy and it's coming to bite him now uh it was supported by some by republicans and democrats and it's like were you, what were you thinking and uh, although I, I have to give credit i i do know jared polish from my time in uh congress and he's a likable guy i i i you know we we get along well enough but and and he's gone far much farther than I thought he should. But he's also laid back a little bit in in compared to some other Democrat governors out there. So, you know, some kudos to him. But I, I just think it it you when you give these guys and gals these authorities, it can go way too far. Oh, yeah. And this is what people are complaining about. And 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 by the way, most of these uh, executive edicts, state by state, are arbitrary in nature. I mean, they're not, they aren't based on science. They, they claim science in, 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 as a verbal matter, <laughs> but, but as a practical matter, they don't even implement it according to what they're even hearing from the scientists that they appeal to. Yeah, it's very funny. In our politics, I mean, it's funny in a, in a gallows humor sort of sense. Yeah. It's sad but funny that in our politics, uh, people will appeal to science as if um, they've got all the answers. Yeah. And then sometimes they will ignore the science when it's looking them right in the face. If you look at the question of abortion, when does the life of a new human being begin? Well, there is a question that science not only can answer, but has answered. We know the answer. Right. And when the discussion is simply among embryologists or uh -huh. developmental biologists and no one's thinking about or talking about the abortion issue, they'll give you exactly what the right answer is. And we all know it. The science yeah. is actually clear about the life of the child in the womb. That that's not a potato in there or an alligator. It, it's not some it's not some potential human being. It's a human being developing, right? Just in the same way that a newborn yeah. baby is a human being developing, or an adolescent child still developing toward toward an, uh, adulthood. And yet, the the progressives, as they call themselves, who sometimes are all hepped up on the importance of science and science is real and they put signs in their yards saying science is real and they claim that the conservatives won't follow the science on climate change and so forth they don't want to get anywhere near the science of embryology they no. don't want to know the truth 
as revealed to us by science, not the Bible, right. not the church, not the ecumenical councils of the fourth century, but <laughs> 20th and 21st century science, they don't want to hear it. Well, even worse, uh, of, of people of goodwill, whether they have a lot of um, uh, experience in the science that, that concerns them when these conclusions are drawn, they don't understand <clears throat> that they actually can't address this. The scientists are experts at the inductive process of the scientific method. Now, I love R.C. Sproul, just one of the, you know, learned so much from him, listening to him quite a bit. He also always would say this, you know, he'd say, I'm, it, it's very obvious I'm not a physicist, but I am very interested in where the realm that I can operate, he said, is, is on the deductive side of the uh, scientific method that, that using logic and reason to test the conclusions that are being laid out in the public individuals <clears throat> no matter how whether they have a college degree <laughs> can can look at for example the science of embryology and can rightly make the statement it is interesting here's one thing i know i'm not i'm not i've never even went to college but here's one thing i know when the sperm and the egg connect that is not going to become an elephant. It's not going to become a, 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 as any other form uh, in, in the animal nature. If it goes to term, it will be a baby. I mean, just the, someone didn't go to high school could come to that conclusion. And it's a rational conclusion that rebuts, I think, effectively these arguments that, that these insane arguments sometimes that are, and illogical arguments that are made for why that baby can be destroyed in the womb. Yeah, uh, you know, there was a time when we didn't know the answer to those uh, questions. Sure. The best we could do was guess. Uh, that I mean, even the greatest figures of uh, intellectual history, like um, Aristotle, uh, yeah. Saint Thomas Aquinas, uh, who talked about uh, issues of human development, for example, but but really did have to guess, and they did their best with the information available to them. But they they didn't get anywhere really near the truth. Uh, it wasn't until the 1820s. It was the discovery of the mammalian ovum that launched uh, our modern understanding of biological development uh, of embryology, of uh, mammalian embryology. Uh, but once that discovery was made, the science pretty much unfolded uh, from there, and yeah. it uh, it revealed all the all, all the mysteries to the point at which it was simply unjustifiable. Uh, in 1973, even even as early as 1973, it was just unjustifiable for Harry Blackman and his uh, fellow justices on the Supreme Court who joined him in the Roe versus Wade opinion to make the claim that there's some mystery about when the life of a human being begins. There was no mystery, even in 1973. And we do know more now, even more now, but we knew enough then to know that uh, the life um, of a human being, at least a, a, newly, a newly conceived human being, uh, is what you get. Conception, that's what the term conception means. You've conceived a new member of the species, a whole right. new member of the species. Whether it's, if it's, if it's an elephant, then it's an elephant species. If it's human, it's the species Homo sapiens. Um, and, and then the only, only question is, uh, is it going to survive? Or how long is it, is it going to uh, survive? I mean, you, you've got a human being now. Will it, will it make it to three months? Will it make it to nine months? Will it make it to two years? Will it make it to 12 years? Will it make it to 90 years? Oh, if they would have only appealed to the science. Yeah. 
That's right. So, but, but you yeah. know, you don't want to hear the science when ideology gets in your way. You no, don't want to hear about right. the science when you can manipulate it. And of course, very often the claims to science themselves are false claims about scientific consensus and so forth. Right. And, we, and we have to be very careful to make sure that we understand that because scientists believe something or whether the majority of scientists believe something, that doesn't mean that even the question is scientific. Right. There's no question that in the early part of the 20th century, the first probably rough first four decades of the 20th century, most scientists firmly believed in eugenics. Yeah. Did that mean there was a scientific basis for eugenics? Absolutely not. Well, by the way, this is a normal logical judgment, not a scientific judgment. The fact that a bunch of scientists believed it was neither here nor there. Well, by the way, I mean, this is this is this gets to a core of something that hopefully if you're ever willing to come back, we can talk about in more detail. But I mean, this is a basic logical fallacy that, that is being promoted in the public sphere as some great uh, idea of wisdom. I mean, it's the appeal to authority fallacy that really can when we don't understand what human nature is we don't understand that even the most brilliant of people can make mistakes and oh, it's it, it's amazing to me that that we continue to allow this appeal to authority fallacy to uh, have precedence in our public debate yeah, I mean, there are obviously we as Christians believe there there are uh, legitimate uh, appeals to authority that authority sure. ha has its place, but um, its place is not in philosophical argument, and and its place is not in scientific inquiry. You know, right. it, it should never be considered definitive. There, I mean, we, the whole science has proceeded by questioning established understandings, established paradigms, established orthodoxies. Mm -hmm. This is what Kuhn's, Thomas Kuhn's famous book uh, about scientific revolutions uh, tells the story of. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's trying to be clear about these things, to think clearly, to think soberly, not to let ideology get in the way of your thinking, not to fall for pretextual arguments. Just stay steady, stay clear, stay in your lane, think, think straight. Yeah, I agree. That, that's I think it's a good transition into your tweet storm, in my opinion, because all of these problems have some of their origin, it seems to me, in the academy, in our, our educational institutions. And one of the re, one of the things that has made it far more difficult as time goes on to uh, grapple with these concerns in a way that uh, that, that leads us to proper conclusions in spite of our biases is to have a strong academic community where people who will have certain amounts of authority or, uh, or work in, in critical areas of society, whether it's in the liberal arts or the sciences, we need to have a, a free institutional approach to allowing people to work in their minds. You know, there was a time in education where the purpose of education was to teach people how to think, teach them how to come to good conclusions that are useful for whatever their pursuit might be. Uh, and we've changed this. And there's always some degree of indoctrination in the academy to the extent that we are trying to come to some goal and end in, uh, educa in educational pursuits. But we've kind of turned that into really more propagandistic approach. So I'll give you an example. I went to Indiana University. By the way, I went, quick side note, I went to the Webb School in Bell Buckle, Tennessee. 
uh, Princeton's famed honor code had its origins from graduates of oh. my of my uh, high school back in, in the Woodrow Wilson administration. I did not know in that. Princeton. Yeah. And um, so I, I'm passionate about this subject because we were kind of an Ivy League feeder school, had uh, more Rhodes Scholars than even uh, every school but Phillips Exeter when I was uh, attending that high school. So a, lar- a long academic tradition. And uh, when I got to college at Indiana University, I remember I was taking a political science course. I majored in English, but I was taking a political science course. And a guy named Byron Carter, who's since passed away, he was a, briefly a chancellor during the worst part of the 60s. He was teaching John Stuart Mill and utilitarianism, knowing I was a conservative. And because of John Stuart Mill's, John Stuart Mill's atheism, I was, I was just going against it, man. I was pushing against it in every way and, uh, in class, and I was always very vocal. But he pulled me aside after class, and he was a liberal. He's a very classical, you know, Democrat liberal. Pulled me aside and really helped me out. He says, hey, Jim, I think you don't understand that some of what Mill is saying, even though you're concerned with his atheism, kind of aligns with the political philosophy you're at and you're not noticing it, (laughs) you know? And I mean, here, he didn't have to do that. He knew that I opposed him politically in so many ways, but, but because of his concern for my ability to grapple with issues that would be useful for me as I was pursuing uh, the things that I was doing. He, out of kindness, out of concern for me, he pulled me aside and corrected me. It was, it was a, one of the fundamental things that happened to me in the university, which in my estimation cannot happen today, or at least not on a regular, as regular basis as it used to. There probably are lights. Hillsdale College is one that we think of. But I mean, there are concerns in every place that we go to. You had, uh, as we talked about earlier, you had asked people who were anonymous just to reveal themselves or at least explain their anonymity. And one of the things that you pointed out in your tweet storm that I thought was very interesting, you, you mentioned, so, so as these people were in fear for losing their jobs, losing even tenure, losing their opportunity to maintain their academic career in the long run, you came to this conclusion. You said, we need courageous people to stand up to the bullying. Risky? Sure. And there will be casualties. I don't pretend otherwise. But there is no other way. And decent, honorable people need to stand in solidarity with those who defy the bullies and come under fire. An attack on one must be regarded as an attack on all. Any such attack threatens principles that are essential to the functioning of universities and decent politics. Progressives have come under attack as well, sometimes from the woke, others from the right, and conservatives need to defend their rights as fiercely as we do our own. Liberals and civil libertarian progressives need to adopt the same stand towards the rights of conservatives. And, and so I'm just curious. I mean, we're, we're talking about people in the academy who are in abject fear. And what, what, what do we need to understand about this? What are the origins of this problem? What are the likely outcomes if this stand that you tell people to take is not undertaken? Well, I think the origins are in a loss of faith. In this case, uh, a loss of faith in the truth-seeking mission of universities and in the truth-seeking vocation of scholarship. Uh, This used to be firmly understood. If you look at the Woodward Report from Yale from um, uh, the early 1970s, 
uh, or the doc early documents of the American um, Association of University Professors or some of the things that have come out of the University of Chicago. Uh, scholars, uh, others used to understand that the whole point of universities is truth-seeking. Uh, universities, it's sometimes said, and I agree, have three purposes. The pursuit of truth, the preservation of knowledge of truth where it has securely been obtained, and the transmission of knowledge of, of truth, the teaching mission. Uh, but you've got to believe that there is such a thing as truth and that it matters. If you don't believe that, then you may keep the forms of a university, the institutional structures and some of the rules, but you're going to be chasing after false gods. You're going to turn the university into a trade school, trying to, trying to train uh, nothing but um, uh, future technocrats, or into a social justice catechism class in which you try to train community organizers and, uh, and social activists. Now, I have no problem with students getting educations that will train them for good jobs, including technocratic jobs, jobs in financial sure, services, sure. jobs in administration. I have no problem in principle with students getting good educations that will equip them to be good activists for the causes that they believe in. But those are not fundamentally what universities are about. And when those ideas or those goals usurp or, or displace the true truth-seeking mission of universities, the universities go into decay. And that's what we have now. That's decadence. Decaying, rotting corpses of what were once truth-seeking institutions. Uh, but we need the resurrection, right? We need to get those, right. those corpses back up and, uh, and going. And that means rededicating ourselves institutionally and in our individual lives as scholars and teachers to the pursuit of truth. Genuine truth-seeking scholarship and non-indoctrinating teaching. What your professor did in your case was what a professor should do, whether that professor is a conservative or liberal or something else, whether he's a Marxist or a libertarian or a tra Burkean traditionalist, whether right. he's Christian or whether he's atheist, and that is getting you to seek the truth. Not trying to push his own agenda, not telling you what to think, teaching you how to think more deeply, more critically, and for yourself. A good university will teach students never to outsource their thinking. It's not somebody else's job to think for me. It's my yeah, job yeah. to think for me. It's not my job to think for my students. It's their job to think. My job is simply to help them to think again, more deeply, more critically, and for themselves. And, you know, one of the main, most fundamental, I think, uh, treatises, actually a collection of lectures that help us help had it began to help us see this problem developing as far back as the 1940s is c.s lewis's book the abolition of man where he described the academy changing from what you described to something trying to create a certain sort of person that was proscribed or prescribed by those in the institutions he talked about taking out the organ but demanding the function and, um, and, and extracting the heart from young people and, and instituting in them almost a robotic mentality towards things. Yeah. He was seeing this back in the 1940s. It's rather prophetic, actually. Well, the net result of it all is a kind of weird dogmatism. Um, you know, as, as a Christian, I believe that, that there's a place for orthodoxy. <laughs> Yeah, you know there are orthodox Christian beliefs, and and then there's deviation from orthodoxy, 
you know, if you're a Christian, you ought to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's the right. orthodox teaching of the faith. If, if you don't believe that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, then, you know, you're just really not a Christian. You can say you're a Christian, but, right. but, but you're not. That kind of heterodoxy uh, undermines the authenticity of your claim to be a Christian. But you, you, we shouldn't transfer that to the educational process, at least in institutions that claim they're non-sectarian, that they're not pushing a particular religious or ideological uh, uh, agenda. There, we're, we're interested in the unrestricted uh, pursuit, of, pursuit of truth. But when truth, the concept of truth is undermined, what replaces it is not some radical skepticism. That lasts for about 15 seconds. What yeah. replaces it is a new dogmatism. It can, it can be a, a, a right-wing dogmatism or a left-wing dogmatism, but it will be a dogmatism, and dogmatism is antithetical to the truth-seeking process. You need intellectual humility. You need the understanding that you could be wrong about something. You need the understanding that somebody who challenges your view might actually be right or partially right, or you might in any event be able to learn something from that person even if they're, if they're wrong. So you should listen to their challenge, you should entertain it, you should take it seriously, and you certainly shouldn't try to silence them or get them fired. Today, people are being silenced, people are being fired for stepping out of line, for saying the wrong, quote, wrong thing, or the quote, wrong thing in the quote, uh, or the quote, right thing in the quote, wrong way. Or, or for not saying something, or not saying something with sufficient uh, vehemence or sufficient uh, force. Uh, these are outrageous assaults uh, on the integrity of the academy. We have academic freedom for a reason. The reason is for the university and the scholars in the university and the students to be able to prosecute the truth-seeking mission of the university. Where academic freedom is undermined, you cannot do that. You just become a catechism uh, class, and that's just not what universities should be. And there's a great loss to the entire society when they degenerate into that, whether they're Marxist or fascist or, or, or whatever they are. They're just not truth-seeking institutions anymore. They're training camps for ideologues. But people do live in fear. Because that we've gone too far in the direction of indoctrination, We've deviated too far from the principles of academic freedom. Even people with tenure wrote to me when I invited people to explain why they were anonymous. I like to clear out my anonymous uh, interlocutors' accounts from time to time because I want to know who I'm dealing with here. But I let people write to me to, if they want to retain their own anonymity to, to tell me who they are or to explain why they're uh, anonymous. I'll respect their, um, their privacy. But when people wrote to me, even people with tenure were writing to me saying, I'm afraid to say what I really think. I'm afraid to actually speak my mind because my tenure could be revoked. I could be fired. Or if I don't have tenure, I won't get tenure. Or if I'm trying to make a career in academia, I'm not going to be able to make a career. And it wasn't just academics, Jim. The majority were academics or people aspiring to academic careers. But a surprising number were from business and other walks of life who said they just feel constrained. They can't speak their minds that the professional consequences to them, or in some cases personal consequences to them, would be uh, too, too terrible to, uh, to bear. Well, how do you run a democratic republic mm -hmm. when people can't speak their minds? The whole reason for the freedom of speech protection in the First Amendment is to enable the republic to function yeah. by enabling people to speak their minds. But where that's undermined culturally and socially, even if it's formally legally protected, where it's undermined culturally and socially, you lose the effect and the whole democracy suffers, the whole republic suffers.
I, I even find amongst cons- people of a conservative political ideology often their inability to allow opposing views to hone the rough spots, so to speak. Yeah. So you got this beautiful s- sphere that you're trying to put together to r- the hone off those rough spots. They won't allow it, but that's a healthy thing because it, it causes them to have to hone their arguments to something that can be palatable or receivable or can be even engaged in. And I, you know, there, there are some amazing parallels between what we're seeing now coming from the left, the shutting down of speech, the bullying, the intimidation, and what we saw in the 50s uh, during mm-hmm. the McCarthy period, right, where uh, people were being silenced, being hunted down, being fired, being bullied, being intimidated. Uh, for anything that could be construed as a statement that was even roughly sympathetic uh, to communism or not sufficiently hardcore anti-communist right. or anti-Soviet. So even the most noble causes can be corrupted and discredited by bad behavior in the pursuit of them. When your mother taught you that even a very, very, very good end doesn't justify an evil means, Right. That's what she had in mind. Anti-communism was a noble cause, a great cause. Yeah. When you think of the great harm communism did, the death toll far exceeding what Hitler managed to pile up. Yeah. Well, anti-communism, uh, opposition to Soviet imperialism and Soviet tyranny was a very, very noble cause. But look at how people like McCarthy tarnished the, the cause. Now the cause of anti-racism, a noble cause, yeah. is being tarnished by people who are using it as a pretext and then uh, deploying bullying and intimidation tactics to try to shut down critics. Yeah, absolutely. So respectful of your time here, one last question for you. So has our academic, are our academic institutions beyond repair? You, oh, no. you, have, you have said a, a called for a courageous stand of people who will suffer, as King did, as many people throughout history did, standing for what was right. Is it beyond repair? Are we kind of too far down the road right now? No, it's not beyond repair. Um, it's just a question of whether people are prepared to pay the price of fighting back. Now, look, you're about my age, I think, or maybe a little younger. But yeah, close. Our fathers, or if not our fathers, our grandfathers, or for my students, their great-grandfathers, uh, at 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, were conscripted into the military. My dad was right out of high school, 18, hadn't even finished high school, and shipped off to fight either Hitler's armies in Europe uh, or in the terrible, appalling circumstances of the Pacific. And they fought and they fought valiantly and they saved the world from tyranny. 18, 19, 20 years old, and they had the courage to do that. Am I supposed to be afraid to speak my mind as an academic because I might get fired? I should be ashamed to think that. When my dad exemplified so much more courage, took so much greater a risk. You know, maybe I'll have to go find respectable work if I get fired. Maybe I'll have to go into plumbing. Uh, judging from my last uh, plumbing bill when, when we had a problem in, with the shower head in, in one of our bathrooms, it's actually a pretty remunerative line of work. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but, you know, I, at least I'm, for my part, I'm going to say this, and I, everybody's got their own story and their own responsibilities. And I don't want to lay a heavy guilt trip on other people. But for my part, I'm going to say what I think because that's my vocation. My vo- I may be wrong about various things, but I'm going to do my best to understand the truth and I'm going to speak the truth as God gives me to see the truth out loud and in public. 
If, if some people aren't willing to do that, then yes, we will lose the universities, we will lose the culture, it's beyond repair. But I think we can restore these institutions if even a minority of professors and students will say, we're not going to submit to the bullying, we're going to stand up to the bullies, we're going to speak our minds, and we're going to support each other. Remember what I said about supporting each other? Yeah. Stand up for each other, you know, circle around each other, go to the aid of the victim. And, and remember, the victim may be somebody we disagree with. If the victim of the persecution, the bullying is on the left, I should be no less quick to defend that person than if he's a fellow conservative. I think if we do that, there will be costs, there will be casualties, no guarantee that you're going to escape retribution. But I think if we do that, we'll save these institutions. I, I love hearing uh, you and your friend Cornell West uh, talking about this. I, by the way, I find him to be brilliant, even though I disagree with him often and in many areas. The man is He's brilliant. right on these, I'll tell you, he's on these issues, he is right on the market. He is. No I, one more solid than Cornell West when it comes to defending academic freedom and the rights of dissent. Uh, he and I have been comrades in arms, locked arm in arm fighting for this cause. It exemplifies what you're talking about. I mean, you're actually living it out. And it's a great example for people to understand what they need to be doing and, and what the risk is, because you both take risks, at, at least, you know, from people hitting at you here and there. But, uh, but Cornell West would have been that same uh, professor to me at that same time, because yeah. you can just, you can see that heart of saying, we're going to make sure that young minds in particular in, in the academy are open and ready to get to the truth. And uh, we, we need a whole lot more of it. So I, I can't tell you how much I, I appreciate what you've done, man. Well, thank you, Tim. It, 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 it would be great to go through the whole Manhattan Declaration. I just want to point <laughs> to that too, by the way, which I was a signatory to online uh, back in 2009. And really a lot of great stuff that you've done through the years, Princeton professor, and you're stuck in there. You've helped a lot of people understand what's going on and what they need to understand. And, and I'm, I'm just grateful for all that you've done. It's inspired me. It's inspired many people through the years, I know. Well, you're very kind, and I appreciate it very much. And I appreciate all the good folks out there who are, who are doing the Lord's work, literally doing the, the Lord's yeah. work, upholding the values that are so central to the preservation of our uh, democratic experiment in order, liberty, Republican uh, government. I myself have been very blessed not only to have great teachers myself, and my own teaching is just my poor way of trying to repay uh, their great generosity and benevolence to uh, to me, but I've also had great students, just magnificent, wonderful yeah. students. I've been so blessed to be able to teach at a place where my students are not only uh, brilliant, but in so many cases also very courageous, and they're out there, you know, fighting the fight and and doing what's right and taking risks and uh, ju just exemplifying what it means to stand up for uh, principle. Many of them are Christians, some are Orthodox Jews, some are of no particular faith, but they're out there struggling to stand up for what's right, stand up for the truth, stand up for the principles that make our democratic republic truly exceptional and worth preserving. And um, I'm, I'm just proud of them. Well, and I, again, I try to promote kindness on this broadcast. I, I'm, when I say I'm against nice, I'm not telling people to be mean, but to have that view of what others, what's good for others and, yep. and irrespective of your opinion and seeking their good. And, and you're doing that on a daily basis. And uh, I'm just grateful for that. And I'm really grateful for you taking some time to be on the podcast today. My pleasure. Thanks again, Jim. Thank you. 
Thank you for joining us today on the Against Nice podcast. Please be sure to go to our website, www.politicsisntnice.com. You can sign up for our email list there just at the top right of the webpage. And make sure to follow us on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher or even the iHeartRadio app. And give us a five-star rating and let people know what you think about our podcast. Again, www dot politics isn't nice dot com join our email list at the top right hand of the page there and follow us on itunes spotify stitcher or iHeartRadio. thanks for joining the show today we'll be back soon <laughs>